You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 115. Have you ever thought what it would be like for physicians to unionize? I talked with Dr. Janae Niazi. His organization did just that. They formed a union. He's going to tell us about his experience, what his expectations were, and what some of the barriers were. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And for more information about the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have a good friend of mine. This is Dr. Janaid. Niazi. He is, I think, one of the biggest union unionized physicians. Is that right? Yeah. We, as of October, my group is the largest private sector union in the country, in the history. Yes. I got your email and I was like, I have got to talk to him about this because I need to know more about this because what other recourse do we have when all the changes that are going on? But first, why don't you tell everyone about yourself? Yeah. So my name is Dr. Junaid Niazi. I'm MedPeds primary care in the Twin Cities, Minnesota. Married to a pediatrician, have two young kids. You might hear them. They may make an appearance. We keep it real here. I've been out of residency now for seven and a half years. And for about six years, part of my role at my organization has been helping try to make our EHR a little more usable for the end user. So I've used that role kind of for whatever its stated purpose is, but also kind of for physician advocacy efforts to really help make sure we have physician voice and some of these decisions that are coming down from above where they would have been pushed through without any physician input had it not been for this role for for me and some of my colleagues. So I I like to consider myself a a physician advocate, and I think that really spills over into the fact that I do physician coaching, run a, a charting program called Charting Concord, and then most recently I was involved in the unionization efforts at my large nonprofit organization for primary care and urgent care. So tell us a little bit more about that because I know that in my mind something has to change. And right now we're exercising free agency with a lot of people doing locums, but the idea of a union is helpful to where we can potentially band together and you know prevent these. So what was your knowledge about how all this transpired? Yeah. So if you go back several years, I was probably fairly wary of, of a union. I think within the physician realm, talk of unions for a variety of reasons is sort of either frowned upon or, or hushed or, oh, that doesn't apply to us because physicians would never go on strike. So what leverage could we have? But I, I really think if you look at the trends in, in healthcare and medicine in the United States, right, I think it's over two thirds of us are now employed. We're not quite like you, Amy, where we're in private practice now, kind of doing our own thing. There are other models out there, direct care models, concierge, uh, locums, as you you mentioned. But for the vast majority, we're employed. And a lot of folks who are employed don't really want to cast out on their own and have a solo practice or run a business, which is what a private practice is. So what recourse is there when medicine's getting so corporatized and decisions are being made from spreadsheets and not from the crux of the physician-patient relationship where decisions really need to be made? All of that only worsened during COVID. I think folks would agree with me when I say, at least in Minnesota, when Delta and Omicron were overlapping in early 2022, our healthcare system was on its knees and there was concern that it was going to break and falter. And in some areas it did to some degree, but 
Uh, we didn't see a, a mass destruction of our system, thankfully, but there was that very real possibility. And I think a lot of us on the back end of that was hoping there was going to be some change, some positive change. And immediately on the heels of that, business went back to usual. And I think that just sort of really told us if COVID, which brought our system to its knees, could not make any meaningful change, what's actually going to make some change in the system? And waiting around for, you know, politicians and large organizations to represent us and to facilitate change for us is just not happening. So we're going to have to make that change ourselves. And I think if you're in an employed position, unionization is one of the biggest, if not the main way to make change, get a voice, get a seat at the table so you have a voice. And I know you mentioned that you were hesitant about unions because of the implications behind it. So what changed your mind? What was it about the idea of unions that you started coming around to? Really, it was the fact that a union is whatever that union makes it out to be. And so I think there are many professions that have long storied histories of unions. And I think some of those sit with us in terms of what our experience has been with unions. And in, in our world, I think as physicians, it's oftentimes, well, the the nurses at this hospital are going to go on strike for, for this thing. And that's probably the first and only time we've really paid attention or heard of a union. And how is that going to affect us? And what I've come to learn is going on strike is really a failure on, on multiple levels. It's, it's, you can liken it to your world to, you know, a surgical error, right? Like the Swiss cheese model, so many things had to go wrong for a surgical error to occur with all these systems and, and checks and balances in place. And I think that the same is true with, with unions. It's really, can we come together jointly to figure out solutions to the problems that face healthcare with us bringing more of the perspective of the the patients that we're, we're caring for directly as well as physicians because i think historically we've left ourselves out of the equation in that regard in our well-being and it helps no one when physicians leave medicine it hurts more patients puts more strain on the system puts more strain on the physicians that who remain and so i think there's been a big paradigm shift where now we actually have to put ourselves almost on par with our patients in terms of our needs moving forward in medicine to keep us in medicine because taking care of ourselves is how we best take care of our patients. I agree. And, and I know that fall of 2021 um, to early 2022 was really tough. I think that was much worse than the very early days of the pandemic because people kind of settled in and they think, oh, this is just the way it is. And and all the things that we were worried about and trying to prevent at first really were happening. That was, I remember taking pictures thinking we've got to remember this, that, you know, how, how challenged this was. And I think that we're all starting to see the cracks in the system with layoffs. I know that I just posted it in a group about, do we even know how much we're bringing in because people are getting laid off because we still want these physician salaries and the hospitals are not getting the money to support these salaries. And so something has to give. And I think we can say it's the employer, but it's really the whole system that's challenging. And I think everyone does have to find a way to advocate for themselves because we as physicians really cannot necessarily determine you know, how we get reimbursed or how much we get reimbursed and, and all the things. We're not decision makers in a lot of these things, except the ability to work more or less, which is I think the decision that we are employing. Yes. And, he, and even that, though, is sort of weaponized against us in so many different ways. So as we were undergoing the, these efforts, the thing that really made me know that, that that we were on the right track was the fact that I heard 
and this is a, a rumor, but I heard some of the payers were starting to get scared learning that we were unionizing. And when I heard insurance companies were getting scared, and then I said, okay, this has to be the right decision because that means <laughs> if they're scared, there's something that we can do to put pressure on them. And that, I think that would be tremendously powerful. And the more having a pan country, pan nationwide physician union, I don't think is is really ever going to be in the cards. And I don't necessarily think that's the best approach, but I think unions at each organization's level with special, even divided up by specialty or several specialties that are related is going to probably be the best approach. But the, all those groups advocating, putting pressure on the employer to put pressure on payers, and we can also mobilize our, our patients as well to put pressure on, on payers and these other entities. I think that's the way forward because the, the system as it's set up right now mostly listens to where the money flows and that is not, we do create the money, but we are not in control of it. So that's how the system is. It's a very interesting system, isn't it? <laughs> well, people will comment about how the system is is so dysfunctional and almost as if it's like, like that's a mistake, but it's really inten been intentionally designed to be this Byzantine kind of complex myriad of, of things patched together to allow all these middlemen to enter, right? Like to allow pharmacy benefit managers, to allow all these other moneyed interests to get in there to get their share of the pie. When half the time it's it's sort of like consulting groups for big organizations. Well, like if, if there's somebody who's hired to do a job, why can't they just make that decision and do the job? Like why does an insurance company now have to hire a pharmacy benefit manager to tell them what meds to cover and what things to do? Why can't that just be their job? But you add another layer, that means there's a reason for that. They can extract more money by making deals with the pharmacy benefit managers. And we're getting more and more expensive care that is not good for our patients and is driving us out of medicine. So, you know, at some point, something's got to give. And how did this process start? Were you aware from the very beginning or were you approached or how did all this play out? Yeah. So I think the process started uh, primarily with the change in reimbursement that CMS had announced in 2021, which was they were increasing the allotments for regular E&M office visits because they were trying to make an effort to better reimburse the cognitive-based specialties. And as you know, everything within CMS is, falls under this budget neutrality. So there's never ever more new money coming in. So they just have to shift money around, which is another way that they sort of keep pitting us against each other in a way. But this happens from year, from year to year or, or every couple of years. And so CMS made these changes literally to reward specialties, including the primary care specialties. And then my organization and frankly, most organizations just said, hey, well, we're not going to pay you more for doing the same work. So we're just going to decrease your RVU conversion factor. Meaning even if the RVUs went up by, I think, 24 to 32%, they were just able to lower the conversion factor by a corresponding amount to negate those changes that CMS was literally doing to promote primary care. Um, and so I think when, when that sort of message got out that, hey, the government's actually trying to shift reimbursement and to reward primary care and to get more people going into primary care, which is actually a huge public health investment because primary care is the only thing that's actually been shown to like increase life expectancy and well-being at, at a population level. So having a robust primary care force is something we all want and need. And CMS was trying to make a positive change towards that effect. And all these organizations basically found a way around it to say, actually, no, we're just, we're not going to follow this mandate from the government. And we're actually going to 
Uh, if you factor in inflation, we actually got, we actually lost money in those years right afterwards. I'd be in a surgeon. So, That's where they, they came from the procedures. <laughs> I figured, and I got an email from one of my friends who's an ER doc, and I think they were getting hit too. And he was like, oh, you got to fight against this. And I was like, look, they're pitting us against each other. You, you've got to see that. It shifts in three years time. It'll be you guys. Let us have our heyday for a couple of years before it gets taken away anyway. We were joking about that. But what was I saying? Well, the whole idea of this budget neutrality basically means like there's only one pot of money and everyone has to fight for it. So all you people who are actually working can decide that, which ironically is coming from lawmakers who decide that they get an annual raise and all these other things and benefits and such. And so it's a little bit difficult to watch saying, what do you mean we have to fight against each other for this limited amount of pie when, you know, there seems to be more right. elsewhere. Well, not only is that pot of money fixed, but then CMS actually will assign the sort of the general RVU unit for different roles within healthcare. And physicians are the only role to which they've never done an inflation adjustment for like 20 some odd years. So if that tells you anything, combine those two facts and it's just not only have our reimbursements been completely stagnant, they've compared to inflation, they've been well below. And you may say, well, I know physicians that are earning more and more. That's because the number of patients and all that we've seen and things that we manage has gone up considerably. Um, yeah, completely agree. So there's all these decision makers making these decisions. So when there was a decision to band together for a union, what were some of the proposals that they had? Like, what did they say was actually going to change by joining a union? Yeah, well, we're a large organization almost between urgent care and primary care. We're almost 600 clinicians and we are physicians, uh, PAs, again, primary care, urgent care, same day care. And, and we unionize that way because that's just how we're organized at my organization. And so that sometimes just makes for easier organizing within the eyes of the National Labor Relations Board as well. But really, I think when you looked at all the initial issues, that that sort of last straw of not really following what CMS did was it wasn't necessarily really about the money. It was about the, the lack of respect and the lack of value they were placing on us while our, you know, they said nationally, the users of Epic, or the EHR we use, we're seeing a 157% increase in, in like my chart messages. Our organization was 400 to 500%. So all these things, there were all these sort of things that were shifting and mostly in the negative direction. And we all just started talking. And I think that was actually the linchpin to everything is we formed a giant group text chain of as many of us as we could. And just sharing stories saying, hey, what do you do here in this part? Because we cover most of uh, Minnesota and parts of Western Wisconsin. Western Wisconsin, yeah. And A, we saw how discrepant things were across the organization when we'd be told that there's this hard and you know fast policy that has to be followed to the T and then everyone else is doing it differently. That That was a little interesting and quirky. But it was also how many of us had stories about our patients and things we wanted to do that we were being told no, or we were being, you know, their organization was placing barriers in front of us being able to give that care. And it was sort of that became the the cornerstone for our organi organizing efforts. So, you know, we, we knew that, for example, we didn't, weren't even seeking raises or anything for ourselves. We were one of our first things we called for was just to give a blanket 5% raise. Like, we didn't call on the organization to do this, but this is just amongst ourselves, was we want to actually pay our CAs more, our medical assistants, because they are the, they are 
we have so few of them that it's actually a hindrance to us actually seeing our patients. And we're aware of that. And organizations are aware of that. They, they tell us repeatedly, it's this is going to be a three to five year problem, but they've been saying that every year since 2020. And so at some point you have to say, okay, we have to think differently about this problem. How can we pull more CAs back into the workforce? Well, how do you make the job more enticing? And if you think, oh, that's going to cost us money, we can't do that. Well, I'm, you know, me and so many of my colleagues, we, we had to scale back the number of patients we could see because there was no one to room them, no one to give them shots. So it just slowed us down. So even if you think of this from the financial sense, it makes sense. You can make the business case almost always. There's a way to align our, our patients' needs, our needs, as well as, you know, keeping the organization, you know, financially healthy if need be. So supporting our CAs was a, a major issue. I think the the biggest thing I gathered from from the conversations though was combating the corporate through line in healthcare, which is we should all be interchangeable cogs and that our individuality as physicians and clinicians doesn't really matter because I should you you know, I should be able to be replaced by another primary care physician who should be able to have the exact same outcomes or whatever that I do. And patients don't choose us when they when they have a choice they don't choose us because we're part of we're an interchangeable cog they choose mm -hmm. us because they like our our personality they mesh well maybe i can get through to a, a certain patient a certain way because of my demeanor how i speak compared to one of my partners who is a great uh, physician as well but they have a certain demographic that they appeal to and it's that individuality that we lose with the corporatization of medicine and that's a patient issue because telling us that we should be interchangeable is also telling patients your needs and what you value should be this way. And there's only one monolithic way of that. And your needs and values and, and desires as a patient don't matter. And that's really what the crux of this comes down to because patients choose us to work with, to partner with for their health and their well-being. They're not choosing, you know, big box organization. Now, are they limited by what their insurance covers and where it drives them? Yes, that's a whole separate issue, but it's related. But they're really choosing to work with us. Their relationships are with us, not the organization. And so I think that's really what came through is people just said, well, I just want to practice medicine the way I want to and not have to check all these boxes, do all this extraneous work, which doesn't actually benefit my patient, interferes with our visits and me trying to take care of them. And yet now I'm getting penalized by being put on a naughty list or being penalized financially because I'm not hitting some clinical metric just to satisfy some person in front of an Excel spreadsheet that has no bearing on, on the care that I'm actually delivering for this patient. So that was the primary uh, driver, the, the primary thing that really helped us all coalesce. But it was, I mean, this was a 18 month process. I can imagine. We're spread out. Yeah. And I, I totally get this too. Like the, there's this amount of work that needs to be done, patient care, this, and that. So then they add more regulations to it. Let's do this and that and that. And we'll tie all these metrics that you have to now accomplish. And so we'll let the person getting a couple hundred dollars an hour do this. 
and we'll like squeeze out the $20 an hour person. And so leave it to the, this person who's making more. And so they said, okay, we'll, we'll bring in less people. And so now instead of that few hundred dollar an hour physician, we'll now replace them with a nurse practitioner and expect the same thing. Cause it's not even like a, a same degree interchangeable thing that they're doing with the cogs in the wheel. Cause I, I can, when I was looking for a primary care physician recently, I, I wasn't actually offered a physician as a primary care. That was not even a choice initially, unless I kind of dug for it. So it it definitely seems like the the math they're trying to work the math but not quite making the the value different but then also in some of these systems like we're required to do things that really don't require the level of education that we have to do so and then kind of being told what well, just make it work Yeah again there so right so in, in medicine unlike a lot of other organizations crap flows uphill um, because most of us are not out hourly or salaried uh, in that way or paid hourly. So if they can get us to the work for free, they'd rather do that than have to pay a nurse or an MA for that, which is a very short-sighted argument. Again, the case being made, the physician and clinician attrition rate is so high. I mean, we lost in 2021, I believe the figure is 117,000 physicians yeah. left medicine, which is the number of physicians in the state of California. Mm -hmm. 10% so of the workforce, more than 10% yep. of the workforce. It's like 11%. Yeah. As if it was as if every physician in California just uh, got up and left one day is what the effect of that. And that was 2021. Mm -hmm. So I've, they haven't released the figures or, or estimates at least for 22. And to not be able to see that you're driving your money makers out of your organization. Like it, I don't know how else to describe short sightedness from a corporate viewpoint than that. And unfortunately, again, part of the corporatization of medicine is like a dollar in hand now matters more than a dollar six months from now or, or 12 months from now, even if you're completely undercutting what brings in that dollar in the first place. And so I've, there's now, there's there's data and articles out there supporting like the, the cost, like how much does it cost to replace a physician? And they'll put it anywhere between 250 to a million dollars in that time that you try to replace a, a clinician of lost uh, revenue to that company. And I just don't think the corporate folks, I don't know, like they have to be hearing about this data. So it's just, there's some disconnect at some level and I don't know what that level is or why it exists. I also don't know why they don't push back harder on, on payers for things. Like I think they waste all of their capital negotiating over the like point zero whatever sent reimbursement they're going to get per whatever from Blue Cross Blue Shield or United or whatever, instead of just saying, hey, albuterol is really important to our members. Like, can you please just cover the most basic asthma medication? Can you please cover this? Can you please do this? Why is physical therapy not covered? You, you say you, you're interested in keeping these people out of these issues. Why don't you cover the most basic things? And I actually think when we're unionized, I think we have a, a pedestal like that to stand on to say, hey, you know, even as a corporate entity, if you were afraid of getting pushback from payers for that, like we now as a separate union entity will say, we're going to push for this too. And we're going to talk to we're going to push against the payers on this thing. And, and I think there may be some interest in doing that at the corporate level, but maybe from one or two people. And I think if they know that there's like the union at their organization is, is backing that thing. I think that'll also give them more impetus and, you know, 
almost like a safety net in a degree. Like it's not just me, it's our 600 clinicians that support this, this endeavor. So I think that'll give them a little more muscle to push back on some of these payers for some of these things. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of these little smaller deals are going on, but the things that I see in, in my state and in, in our hospital is like big things like, you know, Vanderbilt's going to drop all Blue Cross Blue Shield kind of things. It, it, those things like make the news. So, I mean, that's how they're they're negotiating on, on these sort of big dramatic levels. We just got an email uh, a few months ago of saying that this one of the biggest health insurers that we have is may not going to be accepted at our hospital, which is the largest right. in the, the southern mid-south region. And so it seems like the negotiations are on these like big catastrophic levels, at least the ones that I'm seeing. And to your point about the physicians banding together, what would or have you guys even talked about? Where what you would like once it passes through all these Swiss cheese things of coming together as one voice and sharing all the, the things, but what happens when you really can't be heard or they're not listening? Have you talked about any of these catastrophic things that you may like try to employ? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone always, you know, going nuclear is 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 a strike, and I think that even varies state by state as to legality of, of clinicians and physicians being able to strike. But I think there's other ways to make good trouble in, in a way that does not affect patient care, but can sort of light a fire under an employer, for example. They are supposed to come to and negotiate in good faith at the bargaining table. Uh, unfortunately, good faith is a subjectively defined term. But at the same time, we are so large and I think they'd be hard. We're clearly the largest part, maybe not financially in terms of what we bring in, but in terms of number of personnel at, at the clinician level, we're the largest portion of providers and clinicians at, at my organization. So just on that ground, to have sort of a mandate from a union vote that was overwhelmingly in, in favor of a union puts puts pressure on them. And we've seen the results. The organization wants to transition to more value-based from fee-for-service. They've inked a lot of those contracts with the payers, even pre-pandemic. Now they have to go through the union because it's a change in working conditions. It's a change in compensation and how we get paid. So this was on the verge of getting rolled out. We won our election in October, and now they that has to all be negotiated and, and worked out. So this is something that they want to transition to, and now they get to negotiate with us to figure out how to make that transition. And I mean, that that alone puts us in, in power. I can say people, not everybody at the organization was gung-ho about this, unionizing. And once you form a union, that applies to everybody within those, those job classes. And so some of those people are now on the bargaining team. The people that were the most vehemently opposed are like now the loudest people on the bargaining team saying we mm -hmm. have to fight this. Which what do you think that is, is? Why do I think that is? Well, partly I think change is hard. So I think initially people are like, well, no matter how bad my lot is now, the future is uncertain, especially with what you're proposing. And so I don't want to go down that future because uncertainty is way more uncomfortable than the certainty of oh, what's the, I forget if it's a parable or whatever you call it, uh, the dog sitting on a nail. Have you heard this one where mm -hmm. this guy walks by this house and there's a dog whimpering and the owner of the dog is is there in a rocking chair reading a newspaper and the guy that walks by is like, to the owner, he's like, "Hey, is something wrong with your dog? He seems to be uncomfortable." And the guy lowers his newspaper. He goes, "Oh yeah, he's he's in pain. He's sitting on a nail, just very nonchalantly." And then the guy walking the streets like, well, "Why is he sitting on the nail?" The owner's like, well, "I don't know. He's just sitting on a nail." And flabbergasted, the, the passerby is like, 
well, why don't you help get him off or tell him to get off the nail? And the owner goes, well, the pain of getting off is going to hurt him more, so he thinks, than whatever could be on the other side. So why make the change? Just keep sitting on the nail. It's the pain he knows. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for a lot of us. Our brains are wired in a way that in order to save energy and to keep us safe, they keep us in our status quo. So I think a lot of people are afraid for change for that reason. I think a lot of people were afraid that unionization means automatically striking. I think to them, they may have had some negative images or ideas of what a union is based on other unions and seeing those unions function. But again, a union is what the people make it out to be just like our democracy as a whole <laughs> so our democracy only works as well as the people who are running it are what they're willing to put into it and make it run same thing with a democratically elected union so we always say the next step is like the harder thing right like oh you've got to get organized you got to have the election is the hard step okay now you got to win the election and after the election is like all right now the hard work begins and everyone's like oh man i thought you said the last thing was the hard work but now we have to get unified figured out figure out what we want to bargain for and then engage the labor folks on the employer side for those same things. And I, I think now that the union's in place, that has now changed the status quo. And so some of these other people are coming back in saying, okay, well, this is the reality now. And let's make, make use of it and see where it goes. Some of them are probably thrilled that we got the union in place before these changes that they didn't know about pre-election before these changes could be set in stone and affect how, how our job is. How has it changed your job day to day? At this moment, not much. I mean, it's still pretty fresh. I mean, I know two months might sound like a, a long time coming out of it, but our employer didn't challenge the result, which is unusual. They challenged another group that had unionized a couple months before us, um, but ours was so overwhelmingly in favor that it probably would have just cost them lots of money more within a law firm. So they decided not to. And uh, I think just... While maybe nothing on our day to day has changed, just the fact that we know, hey, we're we now have a say in this new thing they're trying to roll out. So this value based care, they wanted my clinic was supposed to be one of the pilots, and they were trying to backdate and start to November first, even though they hadn't gotten us any information about it, and that would have changed a lot of things about my day to day functioning, which is now on hold until this gets sorted out. So. Yes, I don't know what my day-to-day -day might have looked like had we not unionized, but it is certainly different than what the employer had intended. And so that's a huge uh, positive in, in my books. I can imagine if you are employed that the employer has to sign off, just like you said, on forming the union. So I can already imagine some of these things being in new contracts about potentially prohibiting people from doing this, depending on what, how it all plays out. Who knows? We're both just got to predict the future. For from organizing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's illegal. I mean, that's why there's federal law and a whole federal agency devoted to protecting workers. That being said, usually the, the bigger player with them with more money that can hire the expensive law firms can skirt around or go right up to the edge of those rules and includes intimidation and other things. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think the other organizations in, in town were probably also watching this very closely and are worried about their, you know, their workforces. Yeah, actually, now that you mentioned this, in, in our office, we had to post something that you actually have the right to all these things. So employees do actually have rights, and it is required to post it. So if yep. it's probably somewhere in your workplace. <laughs> oh, it is. It's in our break room. I mean, it became a battle of the billboards. Ours is on the one fridge. Point. <laughs> on fridge in the kitchen. All right. So what do you hope it will offer you? Because I know that it's really early on. And I just thought that the idea, 
of it in general was really fascinating to say like us joining together as one voice, because I think that's what a lot of people do feel like we're just screaming into the void. So with this one voice, what do you hope will change? First off, I mean, just locally for, for my organization, I think we're going to be able to make some decisions that promote physician well-being and keep us in the workforce longer, keep us, if we choose, working longer and taking care of our patients and their communities and our communities. And I think that's going to lead to better patient care and patient outcomes, regardless of any clinical metrics that insurances and payers require us to follow, which none of them has still been ever been able to, and even our financial folks at our organization, when I ask, where's the data to show that this has moved the needle on anything ever? Well, it makes sense to track this. Well, okay, it makes sense. A lot of things in medicine make sense, but they don't bear out when we actually study them. And and, and so I think- ICD-10 comes to mind. <laughs> I mean, just about everything, right? Like, I mean, right now we, we'll get penalized if somebody doesn't take an aspirin and they have a vascular condition, even if the patient just refuses to take the aspirin. And the only, our only recourse is being told that that's baked into the uh, de denominator. That's why we don't have to get a hundred percent of people on board. We only have to get, you know, 80 or whatever, but everyone's denominator is different. I mean, if you practice in a more inner city location, you're going to have different challenges than if you practice in a more rural location, but all the metrics are the same. And that, again, there's that sort of standardization. Let's apply principles that worked for Toyota to help them construct a car efficiently. Let's apply those, apply those same principles to how we, we see our patients, right? It just, it doesn't work. We are not robots and our patients are not simply parts on an assembly line. And I think you would ask me, what was I hoping to see? So what I'm hoping to see uh, locally for us is just getting a, a strong first contract. And that usually takes about 18 months or so. So it's a slow, laborious process to get at least the first contract out and hammered out. But we're hoping for one that sort of values us as clinicians, as well as helps restore the primacy of the physician-patient relationship. I think that's really what we are striving towards and moving the needle, inserting back into this, the culture of medicine, inserting back the role of, of the physician as the patient advocate as well, because I think that gets completely lost when these, these corporate interests take priority. Uh, on a larger scale, unionization in the physician world has really been an East and West Coast phenomenon. So this is a pretty exciting uh, event for uh, physician unions as a whole to get such a stronghold in the Midwest. And so we're hoping for kind of a, a Midwest wave of, of unions, because that again will allow us to put a lot of pressure, even on payers and such, to to make some meaningful changes. This will all take time, but I'm I'm excited to see that because I think we've all been twiddling our thumbs for years, just being like, oh, well, someone will come along and make it better. But the truth is there is no cavalry. We are the cavalry. We just need to get back on our horses. Completely agree. But before all this, I know that you have created more time in your life with your personal project over the last several years. I know you've guest coached in my program as well, but tell us a little bit about your charting Concord and how you settled in on that as a solution for at least the immediate problem. Because if these things are coming down months to years down the line, I know you're looking for solutions right now because you and I both are trying to stay in medicine and trying to yes. help other people stay in medicine. And so so. tell us a little bit about your journey creating Charting Concord and what you have to offer. Yeah. So one thing I recognized a couple of years 
uh, or actually pretty soon within six months of working as a, attending was I was not prepared at all for the paperwork, the charting and everything, especially when the, when the buck stops with you as an attending compared to when you're a trainee. And I was just spending countless hours charting. Like my wife's a pediatrician too. And so literally evenings, weekends, we'd just be on the couch on our laptops working, maybe a movie in the background. And that's not how I wanted to live. And that's, I knew that's going to be very difficult to start a family uh, that way. So I became very intentional. I did things backwards and I figured out workflows and efficiencies just by testing things to how I could design a system that worked for me. And I was able to build that up. And then only later in actually about 2020, early 2020, I discovered coaching as a thing and figured out, let me see what this is all about. Cause you know, before that I had just sort of written coaching off kind of like I'd written unionization off. And I realized the mindset piece was actually the most transformative and what took me years to figure out. I now have clients that are able to figure out in a couple of weeks, because when they get that mindset piece down, the the tactics and, and strategy and such come so much more easily to them. And so I decided when I became a coach that I wanted to focus on helping other physicians and APPs get their charting done. Because according to all the surveys, it's the number one cause of burnout. Number two is, is staying spending too much time at work, which I think is because we're mostly filling out paperwork to prove that we saw our patients. And, you know, I've taken 300 plus folks through the program, seen a lot of great transformations, people smashing through their backlogs, getting to inbox zero, which is always a, a nice, fantastic result that we, we cheer people on for. And I offer the program as a cohort twice a year. And uh, the next cohort will be starting in January of 2024. So I can speak a little bit about that. Yeah. So in uh, mid-January, I'm going to be hosting a free uh, live training called Leave Your Work at Work. And then in that training, I'll go over kind of my four-step framework for how you can build systems that, that work for you to get you uh, home on time. And uh, as part of that training, I'll also open the doors to Charting Concord for the next uh, cohort. So uh, I'll make sure to leave, since that'll be in a couple of days, leave your listeners with the, the URL for signing up for that, that training. Yeah, definitely sign up for the, the, these classes, because I mean, if you look around and you see something that appeals to you, like all of us coaches don't want people to join a program that, that aren't going to benefit from it. You know, so a lot of times we'll have a free offering and stuff too, so you can get our style and see what we have to offer. And I think it's really great for us to kind of trial run something before you invest in it. And it is an investment. I mean, I know as a coach and preparing for all these things, thinking about stuff and anticipating things and making it easy and not adding extra time or drama, things like that. It takes some effort to do that. We all have our own personal style. So I, I think it's great that you offer, you know, something which I know because I've taken your stuff myself. So I know that you really have a, a way of making it fun and interesting and effective, and it's not overwhelming. And why not do something that's going to help make you much more efficient uh, in the run, in the long run? Yeah. I mean, that's why it's there. And tying back to an earlier point I was making as, as clinicians, we're all different. We have different approaches, different personalities, different demeanors. That is what attracts different patients to us. Same thing with these programs that we as coaches put on. You might mesh well with one coach over, over another and uh, like Amy said, uh, I'd encourage you to come uh, check it out, if, see what you can learn from it. Um, I've had people that just attend the uh, the training and they have what they need and others uh, decide they want more help. 
Yeah. And I completely agree. And we need a lot of help. So I think all of us banding together and supporting each other and, you know, really trying to find the the right way to go about these things. However it is, I think just like you said, how the unit started, we just start talking to each other and we start, start sharing things. And, you know, I think all of us together can offer each of us help in all these different areas. And so I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this, this early stages of the union and what might be possible for all of us and what happens when we start talking to each other and seeing what the problems are and realizing we may actually have the solution. And the solution is, you know, joining together as one voice can be very helpful. But in the meantime, making your day a lot easier, I'm all in favor of that too. <laughs> right. I mean, I would never would have had time to partake in a lot of these one-on-one conversations and then group conversations as, as these efforts played out had yeah. I not gotten my charting under control. Yeah. I mean, if you're submerged underwater, you don't care what's above ground. Exactly. I totally get that too. I mean, that's the one thing is, you know, by creating, like I've changed my workflow based on all the coaching that I have done and learned and read. And I've created Wednesdays as administrative days. And I'm now discovering even that's not enough to be able to do other things that I want to do my interest in the world and expanding things. And so you really do have to lock down what you do day to day if you want to be more effective in your work, because there's no question that medicine is a constant treadmill that you have to figure out some way to get off of every now and then. Exactly. All right. Well, Janae, thank you so much for coming on today. I will make sure to have the link for your webinar and your program on the show notes and as well as the email going out. And thanks again for coming on. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity, Amy. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.